If you were invited to go on a mission to the moon, and you were allowed to take one thing with you, just one thing, now I'm not talking about like food or oxygen or things like that, but if you got to take one fun thing with you to the moon, what would you take? Alan Shepard famously took a six iron and a couple of golf balls with him, and probably in the most watched golf shot ever, hit a couple of golf balls off the lunar dust. Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon, actually took the Lord's Supper with him. He took communion with him, and in a famous moment, uh, while reading, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches, from John 15, partook in the Lord's Supper while sitting on the surface of the moon. However, Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, the pride of Wapakoneta, Ohio, is that how you say it? Ohio, is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a whole list of other things that NASA wanted him to take with him. But when it came time to take the one thing he wanted to take with him, his biographer, James Hansen, says that it was clear what he was most proud about that he got to take to the moon with him. Before he went to the moon, Armstrong worked out an arrangement with the U.S. Air Force Museum in Dayton to take two pieces of the historic 1903 Wright Flyer that the Wright brothers used to achieve the first powered flight, a piece of the left, original left propeller and a piece of the muslin fabric from its upper left wing. It's fascinating, isn't it? You could say that Armstrong recognized that he didn't get there on his own. He recognized that he was standing on the shoulders of all the pioneers who had come before him. And recently, when NASA sent a drone to Mars to be the first powered flight on Mars, that drone also included a small piece of fabric from the original Wright Flyer as well for that first unmanned but powered flight on Mars. Obviously unmanned, of course. So why is it that they took a piece of the Wright Flyer with them to both places? I'm going to share with you what I'm simply going to call the Armstrong Principle with you. The Armstrong Principle is that Neil Armstrong took a piece of the Wright Flyer with him, or two pieces of the Wright Flyer with him, because he recognized that he was standing on the shoulders of those who went before him. In the same way, I would argue that we as Christians need to recognize that we are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. You and I would not be here if it weren't for people like Peter, James, and John laying down their lives for us long ago and following out the Christian message that it might further. We also wouldn't be here if it weren't for people maybe like your mom or your dad or whoever it was that invited you to church in the first place. We all, in some way, shape, or form, are standing on the shoulders of those who went before us. But what we must also recognize is that we must be the shoulders for the next generation to stand on. We must recognize our vital role in providing the faith for the next generation. If the next generation is going to believe, it's going to be partially because of us investing in them so that they can stand on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so today we wrap up our series that we've been calling Flight Plan, where we've been looking at our strategic plan over the next three years. And we end with what is the most important piece of our mission as a church, in my opinion, and that is the next generation. Our youth and children's ministry will be sent out, or those who are in our youth and children's ministry will be sent out upon their graduation and will continue to carry on the work that we've done long after we are gone. 
And empowering the next generation has been a vital part of both Jewish and Christian history. All the way back in Deuteronomy 6, we see the great Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your being. But also right there, just after that, it says you're to talk about these things with your children while you're going down the road. Like when you're going down the road in your minivan, or I guess back then, on your donkey, however it works, right? You're to be talking about these things. The, the, the things of God are to be near and dear, not only to our hearts, but on our lips and to our ears with our children around. This is to be a regular part of what we do, is talk about the faith with the next generation. And Psalm 78 we read this commitment of the psalmist where he employs, implores Israel to pass down this faith to the next generation. He says in verse 3 and following, Things we have heard and known, things that our ancestors have passed down to us, we will not hide them from our children, but will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, His might and the wondrous works He has performed. And he goes on to say, so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. They, were raised, they were, will rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep His commands. And so we see that this is a vital part of the faith, is passing it on to the next generation, of talking about it with our children, of them seeing how we live out our faith and then having the discussions about it as a result of it. In many ways, the next generation is building on our faith, but what we recognize is that there, in cultural trends is that America in general has seen a decline in the Christian faith over the last several generations. The commitment to the Christian faith is growing weaker and weaker and weaker in our culture. And while there are still some things that are good about our culture uh, as far as the things that are improving, as a general rule, what we see is that Christian teachings are getting further and further from the mainstream and that Christianity is getting weaker as a whole in our culture. Does anybody disagree with that? <laughs> no. It's so abundantly clear. But what I am here to say today, that even if this happens in our American culture, it does not have to happen in our East Point culture. We can grow and be stronger than the previous generation because of the foundation that they have laid for us. We can grow and lay a, a, that same foundation for our children that they can build upon, that their children can build upon, their children can build upon. No matter how weak the church has gotten in any given culture, there has always been a strong remnant. And what I'm saying here is that at East Point, no matter what our culture does, what direction it goes in, we can see strong men and women of the faith rise up that are even stronger than what we are because we invest in them because we say this is that important. And we can see leaders rise up who take on cultural challenges, who overcome some of the barriers that have stood so long in our culture. If we invest in them, we can see this happen. Our greatest legacy won't be left by our own hands, but by the hands of our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren if we do this one thing right. It starts with us, but it does not end with us. The next generation is growing up in the midst of a cultural storm that has been the product of the previous generations. I hate it when we blame America's youth for how they're growing up when we're the ones who created the mess in the first place. 
The truth is, is that truth is now seen as completely objective. It's not the truth anymore. It's your truth or my truth. It's completely unsustainable as a culture, but this is what a lot of our kids are being taught by the previous generation. We see the sexual revolution that started in the 60s has now picked up full steam and is trying to reject basic human truths about sexuality. And while there are things uh, that have come out of it that have been good, that are, that, are, that are good, as a whole, the sexual revolution has done nothing but overly sexualize both our culture and our bodies to the point where we see our sexual identity as our main identity instead of recognizing that our main identity comes from God Himself. We see that the role of church has taken a back seat. And, and, our, and when it comes to sports and other extracurricular activities, church should be an essential activity. Sports should be extracurricular, okay? And, and when we look at this, we have to understand that if we are raising our kids to treat church like an extracurricular activity, then they will choose to go a different direction than it. It is an essential activity. It is something that we must do. The internet and modern media has exposed our kids to so many different ideas and perversions at a much younger age than we ever possibly could have previously imagined. They are swimming an uphill battle. Our kids absolutely need us to be around them and shape them in the midst of this cultural storm. And, but what happens is that younger people tend to see the church as more judgmental. And often this happens because they have seen the legalistic aspects of faith laid out, but they haven't seen people actually being and living Jesus for them. And what we must do is recognize that kids need us more than anything else to see the living, breathing Jesus living in us and through us as we submit to the Holy Spirit. When they see Jesus in us, the love of Jesus in us, the other things will fall into place. They will understand the moral teachings of Scripture. They will understand why that is important. But if we just try to pass on the morality, all they will see is the legality instead of Christ Himself. And so in this perfect storm that our culture has for our children, for the next generation, where we're trying to raise up the next generation, I would suggest that it is a perfect storm of events that can destroy the faith of the next generation. And so today I want to take a look at a perfect storm that occurs in Scripture. It happens in Mark, the fourth chapter. It's my favorite storm story in all of Scripture. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that I like some parts of Scripture more than others, but I will say that. They're all important. But this is the best storm story in my opinion. It even tops the one of Jonah, in my opinion. But it's good too. But I want to warn you that even though we're talking about a cultural storm that our kids are growing up in, and even though I'm talking about a storm in Scripture, that this passage is not about the storm. This passage is about something that is far, far bigger than the storm. And if we're going to read this text, we can't just think of it as Jesus calming the storm. We must think of it as Jesus introducing a completely New storm. Something bigger than the storm is happening here. And Mark's miracles, if you go on to read past chapter 4, which I'd encourage you to do this week, we're going to start in verse 35, but if you read on into chapter 5, you're going to see that there's three common themes that all the miracles have here. First, there's a threat of death. There's a threat of death that causes the need for the miracle. Second, the people in the story are all driven by desperation. 
They're desperate for an answer. I think we can look around and see that there are a lot of people who are desperate for answers today as well. And finally, there's a contrast between fear and faith in all the stories. Will people choose to be faithful or will they choose to be fearful? So here's the story. Jesus has been out teaching. He's tired. He's weary because he's a human being while he's also fully God. Fully God, fully human. It says in verse 35, on that day when evening had come, Jesus told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And the other boats were with him as well. So we see that Jesus, first of all, is stepping away from the crowds. He's pulling his disciples away from the crowds. This is just like when we read in Deuteronomy where it talks about while you're going down the road with your kids, talk with them. This is what Jesus often did. Jesus wasn't all about the show. In fact, Jesus retreated from the crowds often to have time with his father, but also to have that time teaching his disciples. Jesus is drawing them near to teach them something, but this lesson wasn't going to be taught on a blackboard. This lesson was going to be taught on a lake. Secondly, we see that Jesus is stepping into their area of expertise. He is stepping into a fishing boat. You remember that Peter, James, and John, all three of them, the primary disciples, they were all what before they started following Jesus? They were fishermen. They knew the sea better than anybody else did, except for Jesus. And he's going to show them this by stepping into their area of expertise. I was praying this week as I was, performing, as I was, as I was studying this text that God would step into your area of expertise as well. That God would step into the area that you know more about than anything else and show you his lordship in that area. Here's what we see in verse 37. It says, while they're out there on the, the shore, or excuse me, while they're out there on the water, it says in verse 37 that a great windstorm arose. Now, I don't like this translation, the way that it did that. Literally, it says a furious squall arose. I don't know if you've ever been in the midst of a furious squall or not. It sounds like a couple cats fighting, doesn't it? Man, that was a furious squall, wasn't it? You see those claws flying? But this furious squall arose. There's a personification of the storm that happens here. It gives it an attitude. The storm is angry. If there's ever a time to say that all hell broke loose, this is it. Because you see, in their Jewish culture, they were not a very seagoing people. I mean, you think about it. When you got a story like Jonah growing up, and that's your main fishing story, then you got Noah and his ark. You know, like those are those are both stories. Like, okay, like let's just stay away from the water. All right. But they viewed the sea as a place where God and evil would have clashed. And that's to read this story with that in mindset. That they would have heard this as God and evil clashing in the midst of the sea. But I also want to remind you that your kids are in the sea as we speak. The next generation, your grandkids, are in the middle of a furious squall. And it's a squall that's more than just a cultural squall. It's a squall that is battling for their hearts, for their souls, for their lives. So here we have this disciples. The fishermen are out there. You'd think they'd be used to this. They'd seen storms like this. Sea of Galilee is notorious for storms, but this was a bigger storm than what they had seen. A furious squall arose, and continuing in verse 37, 
It says, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. We're not a very seagoing people here in the state of Ohio either. We're a little bit landlocked except up north. And then you look at that. If you are ever in a boat and you are standing knee-deep in water on a boat, that's a bad sign, okay? Would you all agree with that? that? That's a bad sign. Like, if your boat is getting swamped and you're not talking about going through the Everglades, that's a bad idea, right? And so it says that he, meaning Jesus, was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. <laughs> so here is Jesus in the midst of this storm. The fishermen are like hurling over the side of the boat, right? The boat is getting swamped. There's more water than this is coming in from there because they're all wet in their pants. It's that kind of storm, right? This is a terrifying event. And here is Jesus. I don't know if God snored or not. But here he is on this cushion that is wet and he is asleep. Now this is showing us two things. One is that he's fully human. He was tired. Jesus got tired. Isn't that a good thing? When you get tired and you feel bad about yourself? You ever feel bad about yourself when you get tired? Don't. Jesus took naps too. All right. Second, what we see is that he was trusting God in the midst of the storm. He knew that it wasn't out of the control of his heavenly Father. He had the faith in the midst of the storm to not be frightened by it. But it says here, while he was sleeping on the cushion, the disciples, it says, so they woke him up and said to him, teacher. <laughs> I love the fact that they call him teacher here. I think this is what we call foreshadowing. Do you remember when you used to do tornado drills in school? You remember that? Like you'd go out in the hallway. Like if a real tornado came, you wouldn't ever say, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? You'd say, well, no, no, they're a teacher. They know a lot about math. They know a lot about geometry. They know a lot about science, English, whatever else. But like it's like they don't know a lot about stopping storms, do they? That's not really something that they teach in teacher education. But it's foreshadowing for us that Jesus is becoming more than a teacher to them. That this is something far bigger than what they were expecting. They come to him because he's the only one that they can come to. They say, teacher. But he is so much more than that by the end of the story. And they end up saying, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Uh, no, no, I don't care. Well, of course he cares. He's Jesus. Like he's, he's been healing sick people and everything else, but they're speaking out of their emotions now, not out of their logic. Just like so many of the Psalms teach us to pray what you're feeling, it's okay to pray this. God, don't you care about this cancer? Jesus, don't you care that, that my marriage is struggling? Jesus, don't you care about the health of my loved one? How would we pray that for the next generation? Don't you think that maybe the next generation is praying, Jesus, don't you care that my friend is confused about their sexuality? Jesus, don't you care that my teammate is suicidal? Jesus, don't you care that my parents' relationship is on the rocks? You see, our kids see the storm. They get it. 
But Jesus doesn't just want for your kids to merely understand the storm or how to get out of the storm, because this story is not merely about a storm. It's about something so much more. In verse 39, it says, He got up. I don't know if he had sea legs a little bit. I don't know how that works for Jesus. But he gets up. He stands up in the middle of the boat. And he rebukes the wind. He literally tells the wind that it is in the wrong. Okay? Do this the next time. Go out in the middle of a thunderstorm. See how that works for you. All right? No, don't do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm not giving you advice on that. Please don't do that. But he rebukes the wind. Remember we talked about the personification of the storm? And he said to the sea, Silence! Be still! And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. If the story ended there, it would be about the storm, no question about it. And I suspect that if Mark wanted us just to learn about Jesus' power over a storm, he would have ended it there. But this story is not just about a storm. It's about so much more. And so then Jesus turns to them in verse 40. And he says to the disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? You know, I believe it's in Luke's account of this miracle. Jesus actually says in the middle of the storm before he calms it, why are you so afraid? Can you imagine Jesus standing in the middle of the storm like his hair is blowing like crazy because we all know how Jesus had like long hair and stuff, right? You know, like there's a storm coming down, there's lightning flashing all around. Why are you so afraid? I'm here to tell you today, I don't know whether Jesus said it before the storm or while the storm was going on or after the storm. But I'm telling you that he's speaking into your storm today, wherever it's at. And he's asking you whether you're in the middle of the storm, whether you're going into the storm, or whether you're coming out of the storm, why are you so afraid? This isn't a storm problem. It's a faith problem. But listen to how the story closes. You remember before it said that they were afraid in the midst of the storm? Listen to what it says in verse 41. It says, and they were terrified. Storm's over. What conveys more power, afraid or terrified? Terrified. And asked one another, who then is this? Then, meaning looking back to what had just happened, even the wind and the waves or the sea obey him. Our desire is not merely that Jesus would calm the storms in the life of the next generation. Our desire is that they would spend the rest of their lives seeking the answer to this one question. Who is this man? And the same is true for you and I. It is not merely about getting through the storms in life. Jesus is so much bigger than just getting through the storms. This is about asking the question for the remainder of our lives. Who is this man, Jesus Christ? 
And while we may come up with answers from time to time, the reality is this is a lifetime pursuit that He longs for all of us to go on. Who is this man? I believe that this is more than just a storm story because this is not only how it is portrayed in Scripture, but it's because it's what happened in my family's life. I've shared this story with you before, and I do not apologize for sharing it again because I just can't help but share this story because I think it needs to be told. When I was about seven years old, my parents' marriage fell apart. My my grandma had just passed away. She was the rock in our family that held us all together. She was the one who brought us to church. My mom and dad did not go at the time. But their marriage fell apart, and they started looking for help. And time after time, they went to counselors, no help. One counselor even told them, you guys uh, don't have any hope. You guys should just give up, get divorced, and start over from scratch. Fortunately, they were so stubborn that when that guy said that, they did the exact opposite, and they decided to give it one more chance. And so my mom and dad found a church whose preacher, the, 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 the associate preacher, kind of like an Andre guy, uh, was named Charlie Lee. And Charlie Lee counseled them, but he helped them to see that this wasn't just about the storm that was going on in their lives, that there was a bigger question in their lives about who, who Jesus was and what he had done for them. And so he helped them through their marriage problems. And today they've been married for, gosh, I can't remember how long it's been. It's 48 years they've been married, all right? But here's what I'm going to tell you. It was so much more than just saving their marriage. As a result of all this, my, my, my dad got saved. My mom got saved. My sister got saved. I got saved. My little brother got conceived as a result of the whole deal. We all came out of it really well. We all did very well as a result. But my dad, within a year of getting saved, wound up being asked to portray Jesus in the Easter musicals. I grew up watching my dad get crucified six times in a weekend. But as a result of seeing the life change in my family, as a result of seeing everything that had happened and how it changed, within about a year of my parents coming to faith, I apparently told my mom and one other lady one day, I don't even remember saying it, but I told her that when I grow up, I want to be a preacher like Charlie Lee. I still want to be a preacher like Charlie Lee when I grow up. I remember telling her I wanted to be a second baseman for the Cubs like Ryan Sandberg. She didn't pray for that, though. We all could have been retired by now, but no, that's not what she prayed for. Here we are. Um, you see, it wasn't just about God calming a storm in our lives. And I know that some of you are in the midst of big storms right now. Some of you feel like the storm is so overwhelming, you don't know what's next. But what I'm telling you is that it's bigger than the storm. It's bigger than just getting through. It's that at the end of the day, you look back and you say, who in the world is this man that just changed my life? Who in the world is this Jesus? So that's what we want to answer today. How is it that we can create lifelong seekers of Jesus Christ? 
when we talk about reaching the next generation, our team has laid out several different responses. I'll share three very quickly with you today. First, we want to see in our young people an enthusiasm for serving. We want to see our young people being the first to jump in line to serve Jesus Christ. That means that we need to set the example for them by being enthusiastic about serving as well. We want to see our kids, we want to see our numbers at events like CIY and at our church camp increase greatly because we recognize that those are dynamic times where they will learn to be like Jesus in an intense environment. We have intense environments for basketball, for baseball, for football, for, for singing, where they can go and learn about those things in intense environments, and, and it can be, be game-changing for them. But we believe that when these kids have experiences with Jesus Christ, it won't just be game-changing, it'll be life-changing. Next, we want to see our kids rooted in the body. This means intergenerational relationships. Studies have proven that if kids have at least five relationships outside of their parents in the church that are meaningful to them, they will have a greater chance, a much greater chance of sticking through the faith through their college and young adult years. We want to see that happen as well. And finally, we want to encourage, equip, and empower parents to be the primary faith influence. You know, there's 168 hours in every week. Here at church, we get them for one, two, maybe three hours. You get them for a whole lot more at home, don't you? And the reality is, is God has entrusted kids to our church, but more important than that, He's entrusted kids to families to be raised. And we recognize that the, that the real strength is when we empower and encourage parents and equip them to be the Christian leaders that God has called them to be. Real quick as we wrap up. Seven years after the Wright brothers flew for the first time, 1910, finally their hometown was getting to see them in action. Finally their hometown of Dayton had started to recognize what these two men had accomplished. And so they had this event about 10 miles outside of Dayton in the middle of a field because airports didn't exist back then where everybody in Dayton was invited to come out and watch them fly. And even though it was 10 miles outside of town and people didn't really have uh, automobiles for the most part back then, about 3,500 people took that 10-mile trek to see this flying machine. Up till that point in time, Orville and Wilbur had never flown together for safety reasons. They knew if the plane crashed, they wanted their work to continue with the other, and so they never flew up until that one day where they finally flew, and they flew around the crowd as the crowd cheered, and then they came in and they landed. But as Wilbur, Wilbur and Orville landed the plane, out of the corner of their eye, they see an 82-year-old man running out to them. He was wanting to fly as well. This 82-year-old man was the man who, when they were little boys, had brought home a little propeller for them to teach them to fly. You've seen those before, right? We still have them today. This man was their father, Bishop Wright. And so, so Wilbur got off the plane, and Bishop Wright, the 82-year-old man, became the oldest man to ever have flown at that point in time. But the whole flight while he was flying with Orville, he could only say one thing over and over and over to his son. The only thing he could say to his son was, higher, Orville, higher. 
It was like he had been saying that message throughout their entire lives. Higher, Orville. Higher, Wilbur. Higher. And I just wonder if of all the things that we shout at our kids, if the one thing that we need to be shouting is, Higher, son. Higher. Higher, girl. Higher. You can do this. Look to Jesus. Higher. Higher. And I wonder if all the kids at our church heard that not only from their parents, but from all of us. Higher, child, higher. How different their lives would be. And if we listen close enough, we might even notice that we're not the only ones shouting it. That that word, that line is coming repeatedly from their heavenly Father. Higher, child, higher. Church, may we be a church that has our eyes so fixed on Jesus that our kids can't help but keep their eyes focused higher. Father, we just, God, I just, I just think back at my home church and how they poured into me. And I think about all the faces that they would probably, even if I thanked them, that they would say, what did we do? Just simple words of encouragement that changed my life. And Lord, I look out at this church and I see so much potential for people who are able to impact the next generation. I see so many people who already are. I see people who smile and who loving encouragement, Lord, could be such a great asset. And so, Lord, we just commit ourselves to raising up the next generation. We pray, Lord, that we would truly be able to raise up the next generation stronger in the faith than we are. We pray that you do that in spite of all the cultural things that we have coming against us, Lord. That we would be able to truly, that we would be able to truly point our kids higher. We pray, Lord, that you do a great movement among us through the next generation. But, Lord, we pray that you start with us. May we know that it's not just merely about the storm, but it's about the Savior. It's about you, Jesus. And may we be a people who ask every day of our lives, who is this man? We love you, Jesus. And we acknowledge that you are the Lord of all. Amen.